0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast, created in the studios of Independent Community Radio Station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews3 crorgau Evil minds at plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning machine keeps turning, death and hatred to mankind, poisoning their brainwash minds. Welcome to the Anarchist Wool This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist Woolless Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's edition of the Anarchist World This Week. The Anarchist World This Week has been broadcast in various guises, Encounters with the Third Alternative from 1977 to 1989 when the Soviet Empire collapsed and then we are changed to the anarchist world this week. So we're almost reaching 50 years. So I hope to get to 50 years of broadcasting. If I don't, that's life. Now, if you know what anarchism is all about, I think t- what's happening in the world today highlights the need for anarchism. and I'll explain that later on. Anarchos without rulers. A society without rulers. Everybody automatically assumes if there's nobody to tell us what to do that we are incapable of working together to live our lives as individuals, communities, regions, even nation-states and even internationally. I mean, what's happening in Europe today and what's happening around the world in many places I think highlights what happens when power is centralised into fewer and fewer and fewer hands. So if you're an anarchist, you're involved in two simultaneous struggles. And these simultaneous struggles take many forms. There's no specific strategy that uh, people follow, but it's a strategy which revolves around sharing power, that's devolving power, that's decentralising power. And it's a strategy which revolves around Holding wealth in common. Why these two principles? Equal power, equal wealth. Very simple. It's inequalities in power and wealth, as we've seen in the current uh, invasion of the Ukraine, which is responsible for many, if not most, of the world's evils. So, as anarchists, we see what's happening in the Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia as a vindication of what we have been saying for generations, for hundreds if not thousands of years. The more that power is centralised, the greater the dangers to ordinary people. (sighs) Look, I'd also like to send our sympathies, not that sympathies are worth much, at least we're thinking of you, of our listeners in Queensland and New South Wales. We have many listeners in Queensland in New South Wales who are currently dealing with a so-called, you know, one-in-a-hundred-year deluge and floods. Now, I've survived both floods and fires, not, not just... Um, but, you know, for real, you know, I've had a house burnt down, I've had a house flooded... And I understand it is an exceptionally difficult time. So we pass on our support to people. And if there's anything you can do, if you let us know, we will do our best to uh, um, allow other people to share in what's happening. All right. A miserable half a cent. In Australia over the last two to three years, we've seen a number of things. We've seen bushfires, we've seen floods, we've seen pandemics, but the only thing we haven't seen is the second coming. Although Mr Morrison may be the second coming, but I'm not sure about that. So what I've noticed, and I've spoken about this for decades, is the piecemeal approach that we as a nation have to disasters. And as the climate emergency doesn't want to seem to go away, irrespective of what's happening in Ukraine, the fact is that we as a nation, which is historically prone to flooding and fires and you know, increasing temperatures, are at the front line. And if you're at the front line of any struggle... You need to be prepared, and the key word is prepared, P-R-E-P-A-R-E-D. As a nation, both at a state and federal level, we are not prepared for disasters. The institutional frameworks that we currently have that deal with disasters are piecemeal and almost irrelevant. And I'm sick and tired of hearing politicians and community leaders talk about the wonderful spirit which envelops a community, the Australian spirit when faced with disaster. Obviously, when people are faced with disasters and the state and the private sector are not able to assist or refuse to assist, then obviously people collectively, collectively deal with the situation, we are not stupid now what I'm going to propose is something I've proposed in the past, it's nothing new, it's nothing radical, it's a little bit boring but it does mean that as a nation we are prepared and also I'll be looking at a way to finance it it will cost a miserable half a cent. Now, I am sure the corporate sector would love to pass on a miserable half a cent to its consumers and clients. Now, what I'm proposing, as I said, is nothing new, but it needs to be put on the public agenda because people talk about the immediate consequences for two or three days or a week or two or three and then forget about it. And the people who have suffered, the people who haven't been able to insure their properties or insure their goods, they will continue to carry that burden while the rest of the community marches on. So what's this miserable half a cent about? Well, I'm proposing... A financial transaction tax of half a cent on any entity, private or state, which has a turnover of more than ten million dollars. This would raise anything between thirty to fifty million billion sorry billion I get confused. Thirty to fifty billion dollars per year. Now, I know we've got a disaster future fund, which we don't actually do anything with. But this is something separate. This money that would be raised from a miserable half a cent financial transaction tax on every financial transaction in any corporation or private entity with a turnover of more than $10 million per year, it's very easy to collect because everything is computerized these days. Well, most things are. We'll be quarantined to create 50 disaster centers around the country. Now, we have a population of 25, 26 million. What that means is for every 500,000 people, possibly say a million people, In a major capital city and 250,000 in a regional centre, you would have a ready made disaster centre which can provide accommodation, assistance, and deal with that disaster. That means a billion dollars or 700 million to a billion dollars per disaster centre. And I'm not talking about some privatised extravaganza which we gouge, which will gouge taxpayers' money, but I'm talking about nationally owned disaster centres with permanent staff, with accommodation, with services, with staff that can be transferred from one to another in, peri- in periods of different regional disasters, with a National Coordinating Centre in Canberra. And this these disaster centres, in a period of a cli- climate emergency, these disaster centres would be there in terms of natural disasters, well I should say human-provoked disasters, in terms of pandemics, in terms of war, and then it would not only be staffed by permanent staff whose job is to ensure that they function, not only would they have equipment to deal with different situations, but they would also provide a focus for the disjointed volunteer Volunteers that we car- system that we currently have, where people could actually volunteer at their local disaster centre and be available if need be. But these are not national disaster centres that are put in place to take the place of the various volunteer organisations around the, the Australia. They're not there to take the place of the disjointed institutional responses we have, but they are there to look after the interests of all Australians. Not, those, not just those that live on the hilltops and we leave those that live in flood prone areas to fend for themselves, but all Australians. And that would be their function, as I said before. Possibly in a large urban setting like Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane, you could have one for every one million people. In regional areas, you could have, say, one for 250,000 to 300,000 people. So we would be, as a nation, or as a people, if you don't want to use the word nation, as a people, we would be prepared for anything. And that's what it's about. What's the point of having a state apparatus which is controlled by this private sector to maximise profits for a small number of people. It's about time we saw some original thinking in the community. For far too long, various governments at the state and federal level have been unwilling to stand in the way of the private sector making profits irrespective of the human, social and environmental costs. These would be national disaster centres. Obviously there'd be interaction with state authorities but they'll be nationally funded through a half a cent financial transaction tax. On every financial transaction that occurs in corporations and private entities that have a turnover of more than $10 million per year. And as I said, we could raise between 30 and $50 billion, which would be more than enough to fund staff, provide services, emergency accommodation, emergency care in terms of disasters. And obviously, if there's a disaster in just in one region... Staff can be transferred, but the thing is, we are there. I mean, we have a defence force, which theoretically is there to protect us against invasion. We have a public hospital system, which theoretically is there to look after the health of people. We have a public education system, which theoretically is there to educate Australians, But we don't have a national disaster response plan that goes further than crowdfunding that was proposed by Mr. Button to deal with the current flood emergency in eastern Australia. Extraordinary. Here we have one of the most senior members of the federal government in the inner cabinet, a man who aspired to be Prime Minister before Morrison kicked him out of the way, who, faced with a deluge, a biblical deluge, says, well, let's do some crowdfunding. What's the state there for? What's it there for if not to look after the interests of people? Theoretically, the state has been forced to take an interest in the affairs and welfare of the people it controls. I mean, the state historically has basically been there. It's a centralisation of power. It's a monopoly on the use of force that historically looked after the interests of those who wielded power. That's what it was there for but through revolutions and revolts and protests, mainly during the 19th and 20th century, we have seen a transformation in the role of the state from not just there to look after the interests of those who exercise power, but also there to provide services to the citizens it controls. So isn't it about time that we looked at a different way of dealing with the increasing emergencies we are going to deal with as the climate emergency expands. I mean, the climate emergency does not care if Russia invades Ukraine or if the Myanmar military destroys its people It doesn't care if the House of Saudi is laying waste Yemen and bombing hospitals and education facilities. It doesn't care if we set up concentration camps. It's a response to human habitation on this planet. Think about it, a miserable half a cent to provide stability, to provide protection, to provide services. Not some um, cash cow, as we've seen the National Disability Insurance Scheme turn out to be for the private sector, but as a significant part of this country's defence system. Not of a, a defence system which is based on dealing with external threat, but a defence system which is based on dealing with the problems that a climate emergency creates. A defence system which is based on catering to the needs of people who find themselves in difficult situations because currently it's all very well to talk about the wonderful volunteers but when the floods subside and the mud and I remember the smell as I said before being involved in floods and when the mud cakes your property and the bank's want the mortgage to be paid and the owners want their rent and governments at the local, state and federal level want their charges and taxes to be paid and you've lost everything, ultimately the responsibility and the burden will rest on your shoulders and the shoulders of your children and their children. And that's why... It's fundamental that we not only look at the creation of national, as I said, 50 national disaster centres to deal with this situation, we also think very clearly about introducing a universal basic income to ensure that people who are faced, put in this situation, can at least survive in a capitalist economy, in a, in a private investment for private profit economy, which unfortunately is the economy we're saddled with. And you can kill two birds with one stone, setting up national disaster centres, I mean around regional disaster centres around the country with national coordination and a universal basic income because you could increase that miserable half a cent trans- financial transaction tax to a two cent tax and that would not only finance these regional disaster centres, but it also would finance a universal basic income. And if you're concerned about rich people getting the universal basic income, well obviously that money comes back to the Treasury through the taxation system. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming on 3CR.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscano. Look um, you want to look at a few things that where I look at these uh questions. YouTube, public interest before corporate interests. You can go to the you can join public interest before corporate interest. Go to Pipsy pibc net. as I said before. We continue down the same pathway, we'll continue to get the same results. So I encourage you to join public interest before corporate interest. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489, 0439 395 489. And if you do leave, me- please leave a message. If you don't leave a message, I don't call back. And if you're going to SMS, think of other people. Think of other people. If you've got something to say, make it succinct. Let's move on. It takes two to tango. Now, I think most of us are being drawn into this vortex between the good Ukrainians and the bad Russians. Right? You know? It's the the you know it's the idea of the day. Now, I'm a little bit confused. I am confused. Obviously, Russia has invaded the Ukraine. One sovereign nation state has invaded another sovereign nation state because it believes it doesn't have a right to exist because somehow it poses a threat to the Russian people. And I understand the outrage. It is outrageous, totally outrageous, But it highlights two things. One, it highlights how dangerous the centralisation of power in the hands of one person or a small elite is. And that's what anarchism has always been about. It's been about breaking down hierarchy. It's about decentralising power. Now, I could go on and be as obnoxious as I like, but at the end of the day, I'm just obnoxious. I'm just an obnoxious individual. When you compare what I say, and the effect it has, to the real power that people like Morrison, and Putin, and Biden, and Ping, are able to exercise you begin to understand what centralization of power means. Now, currently, the dispute between Ukraine and Russia and the rest of the world, because it does involve all of us, is not just a... it's not an ideological dispute. They're both capitalist economies. They're both sovereign nation-states. They're both nominally democratic, or parliamentary democratic. But the thing is that when you look at the dispute, it's about the power that an individual or a few people are able to exercise. I click my finger and you laugh. Putin clicks his fingers and he is able to mobilise an extraordinary, powerful armed force. The Chinese leader clicks his fingers and he can do the same thing. Biden clicks his fingers and and the same thing happens. So the greatest threat to human happiness and human life is not some deranged terrorist or some terrorist with some quasi-religious or quasi-national agenda. But the greatest threat to life is state terrorism. When one state makes its a bid to destroy another state for whatever reason. And I think it's important that we look at this reason. Because it takes two to tango, whether you like it or not. It's a little bit lonely dancing the tango by, by yourself. It takes two to tango. Now, this dispute should not have reached this level. And to a significant degree, the reasons behind the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia could have been addressed through diplomacy if the West was willing to take one backward step. Because this dispute was about Ukraine joining NATO and encircling the Russian state. Now, I'm not take, I don't take sides. I'm against the centralisation of power. But what I want us to understand is the reason behind what's happening it's all very well to say Vladimir Putin is a deranged individual it was all very well to, for people to say that Adolf Hitler was a deranged individual and Pol Pot was a deranged individual and Stalin was deranged individuals. but these were not deranged individuals these were individuals who exercised absolute power and in this situation this dispute could have been minimised or maybe even prevented if the West, the so-called democratic West, was willing to negotiate regarding the Ukraine joining NATO. Now let's not forget Russians are paranoid. And they're paranoid for a very very good reason. In World War II, over 20 million, some say 25 million Russians, over half of the people who died in the whole of World War II around the world, died defending Russia. And that historical memory plays a very important part in the Russian mentality. And if they see themselves encircled as a sovereign nation-state, they're concerned. This could have been avoided. It could have been avoided. Now, I understand the reaction to the Russian invasion. I think it's totally deplorable that one nation-state enters another nation-state and then attempts to resolve that issue through the use of force. And I think it's a deplorable increase in nuclear alert because that was basically a message to the United States of America. You get involved in the Ukraine and nuclear weapons are on the table. Because the thing about these disputes, especially in the European theatre, is they tend to spread. Look at World War I. The Archduke of Ferdinand was uh, assassinated, I think, by, if I'm correct, Serbian nationalists. And that set in a whole train of events which led to World War I, which led, then led to a peace settlement, which led to World War II. A whole train of events. So this is not just an issue about Ukraine and Russia. It's an issue about possible conflict spreading beyond that border. I think most people understand that. So it takes two to tango and sometimes you need to take a backward step in order to survive because is the loss of life that we are currently seeing worth it and that's what we need to ask ourselves over and over again because what i find strange and maybe it isn't strange what i find strange is the fact that we've seen the same little thing play out in Yemen over the last four years. Now, I'm sure some of our listeners know where Yemen is. It's near the Horn of Africa. That you won't have much interest in what's going on there. But Iran and Saudi and the House of Saudi on the Arabian Peninsula have been locked in a little dispute in Yemen regarding. You know, there are spheres of influence. And the House of Saudi, with full United States support, has been bombing the hell out of Yemen to such a degree that the place has become so disrupted that we've had cholera epidemics, that starvation among children is now... A huge and malnourishment is a huge issue, and I haven't seen any measures taken to rein in the House of Saudi. All I've seen is full support from the West for the House of Saudi, because obviously it's sitting on a large supply of oil, which is still necessary in this post-industrial society society we find ourselves in. So we can be selectively angry. We can see instantaneous images of what's happening in the Ukraine, but we don't see instantaneous images of what's happening in Yemen. Or We shrug our shoulders and say, ah, well, that's the way it is and that's the way it'll always be in these types of nation-states. I think the fact that it's two European countries that are, you know, slogging it out makes it more real. But the fact is, this type of behaviour has been going on for a long time. We saw the invasion of Iraq on the pretext of destroying weapons of mass destruction. We saw what happened in the Vietnam War. We've just seen what's happened in Afghanistan. After trillions of dollars were wasted in a failed experiment, which created a government that was so corrupt that the Taliban was able to take over within a few weeks, although it was it it had minimal military forces compared to the Afghan army, because the Afghan army had lost any will to resist. Obviously, in Ukraine, it's very different. People have the will to resist against Russian military aggression. But the fact is that if power is centralised in the hands of a few and you've got a hierarchical system you don't have much choice if you're a soldier. If you refuse to fight you get shot. And that's the dilemma. Centralising power is exceptionally dangerous. It creates it creates the background for constant war. And the good thing about war is that it's good for two groups of people. It's good for the military-industrial complex. They'll be rubbing their hands now that the Afghanistan theatre is closed down, and obviously Yemen, there's not as much money to be made, but there's a lot of money to be made in war. That's the first thing. And the second thing about war is it, it divides us. It reinforces national boundaries. It reinforces the idea that we are, we're not human, but we're Australians or Yemeni or Ethiopian. That somehow we're part of some artificially created sovereign nation state that it's worth fighting for and dying for. So it's very useful in terms of increasing nationalist rhetoric and getting people to support a system which maybe they didn't support because somehow, because we have the same cultural background, speak the same language, that somehow that makes us different. And nationalism itself is a disease, and it's a disease that can be fostered in order to reinforce the power of elites and minorities. And that's the dilemma that we as anarchists face, or people who involved in the struggle to devolve power and share wealth, face what is worth defending, what isn't worth defending. What's the point of defending some type of system that doesn't really look after the needs of its people as we see in this country? Now, those of you who think, who think that Australia, to some degree, is not part of the same issue, think again. Now, Mr Biden has extraordinary powers as far as the... He is the Commander-in-Chief... Mr Putin has extraordinary powers as far as Russia is concerned. Mr Macron has extraordinary powers as far as France is concerned. And the list goes on and on. But our Prime Minister, Mr Morrison, or any Prime Minister, future or past, has extraordinary powers. Because in Australia, constitutionally, it's not Parliament that makes a decision about whether we go to war or not. It's not the security uh, group within CAB that makes that decision. Ultimately, whether we go to war or not is a prime ministerial decision. That power, constitutionally, is enshrined in the hands of the prime minister of the day. And we saw with this in the coalition of the willing, in inverted commas, that entered Iraq over 20 years ago, when we saw tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Australians protesting on the streets against Australia being involved in that war, and we saw the Prime Minister of the day, Mr John Howard, making that fateful decision to invade Iraq, because of the Prime Minister of the day. So again, as I kept saying at the beginning, the issue isn't nationalism. The issue is not even borders. Ultimately, the issue is about centralisation of power and whether any individual or small group or elite should be allowed to be in the position where they can mobilise millions of people in order to pursue their agenda, whether it's Russia invading Ukraine, whether it's the House of Saudis' uh, invasion in Yemen, whether it's the military dictatorship in Burma or Sudan or Belarusia, and the list goes on and on. Ultimately, it's that concentration of power in An exceptionally small minority, which is the greatest threat we face as individuals, as members of a community, as members of a so-called sovereign state and as members of the human race. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Ah, that pesky climate emergency just won't go away, will it? It doesn't care. It really doesn't care what happens to us, does it? It doesn't care. It's a little bit like driving a car. Now, if you drive at a reasonable speed or a low speed and you have a collision, there's a good chance you'll survive. If you ignore the uh, speed signs, the pissed drugged out of your mind, not only are you a threat to everybody else around you, if you're driving a vehicle, there's a good chance you won't survive. And the same with the climate emergency. Now, we can shrug our shoulders and talk about the heroism of volunteers in dealing with emergencies. We can talk about government support in dealing with emergencies. But what's the point if we continue to indulge in behaviour which maximises, that's right, maximises the chances of making a climate emergency worse? And that's a dilemma we face as a society. Do we continue on this path, whether it's a private investment for private profit path, which is based on coal, or a private investment for private profit, which is based on green energy production. What is the best way to deal with this? Are we just mere spectators, just mere spectators watching Governments do things or not do things, or are we more than mere spectators? The issue is we are not spectators. We are all part and parcel of the same problem. And whether governments act or governments don't act, the consequences of that action Don't change, and if we don't make any changes to the way we live, the way we consume, well, the consequences will become more and more dire. That's the problem. It's not a matter of creating a fake emergency and saying, you know, shouting fire, fire, fire. It's a matter of saying, look, this is the situation we need to make some adjustments if we're not willing to make adjustments not just on an individual level or a national level but on an international level well then we will reach a point of no return because nature is unforgiving it is totally unforgiving it doesn't work on some type of moral or ethical basis you do one thing Something else happens somewhere else. It's that simple. Whether we like it or not, we live in a contained environment. We live on the planet Earth, the blue planet. And there are more and more of us every day 7.5 billion now, 9 billion in 2050. And we're faced with a dilemma. We'll face for a number of dilemmas. One, increasing population growth. Two, finite resources. You can't split the planet in two, although we've got very, 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 um, how shall I put it, smart scientists. The fact is that most scientific research is designed to assist the private sector in making a buck let's be realistic I mean nothing highlighted this more than the COVID-19 pandemic when you've got two or three large corporations which through a lot of taxpayer assistance have been able to create um, vaccines against COVID-19 which in the majority of cases have been highly effective but unfortunately they have intellectual property rights which mean that unless you have you got the cash to access the vaccine, unless your government is willing to subsidise it, well, then bad luck, because we have an intellectual property right. It's our right. It's our property. We don't care if millions die, as we saw with the AIDS pandemic or epidemic. where there was treatment available, but it was out of the reach of most people. And it wasn't until these corporations were forced to give up their intellectual property rights... That AIDS treatments became cost effective. So the issue is, as I said before, nature is totally unforgiving. You pat a crocodile and you know what's going to happen unless the crocodile has its mouth taped. All right? Unforgiving. You chase a snake. It's going to turn on you and bite you. Simple. You foul the earth, the same thing happens, as I said before. Increasing population, finite resources, and then we've got this wonderful economic system, and let's don't pretend, you know, it doesn't exist anywhere, but it exists, it's 99.9% of the world is based on a private investment of a private profit mantra. Whether it's so-called communist China, you know, the pariah Russia, the victims Ukraine, Australia, the land of hope and glory. I oh, know, I mean, yeah, land of hope, the, the brave and the free, or the land of the braver than the free in the United States of America. They're all based on the concept of private investment for private profits. Creating artificial markets in order to satisfy artificial needs in order to maximise profits. Now, if you've got an economic system which is based on that concept you are going to have problems so there are a number of things we need to face whether we do or not nature doesn't care because we we're, we're the victims it doesn't care it really doesn't you know you go out and uh, uh, lie on the ground and not eat for a few days do you think nature cares no it'll be grateful for the bit of fertilizer you'll be able to provide with your body decomposes but it doesn't really care. I mean, we are the only ones that can actually make that difference as far as population growth is concerned, as far as finite resources are concerned, which means decreased consumption, as far as relying on a private investment for private profit model, and the list goes on and on. So think about it. Our future is tied to the rejection of the private investment for private profit profit model. I'll give you an example. Now this is very simple. See, see, see. Most things are simple. They're not complex. We're told, oh, that is so complex. You will never be able to understand it, and more importantly, you'll, we will never be able to, you know, deal with the situation. I mean, climate emergency is a very simple concept to understand. Right now, I'm feeling a little bit crazy, all right? I've got this beautiful terrarium and I've put some little mice in my little terrarium a terrarium like Earth is a fixed entity you know, we've got a glass case we've got this beautiful beautiful greenery in the glass case, the Garden of Eden, like the uh, planet Earth before the introduction of the human species, and all of a sudden we put these little mice in now It's got every feature of planet Earth. It's a contained system. It's got finite resources and it's got Adam and Eve, our little mice friends. Now Adam and Eve do what Adam and Eve normally do, reproduce. And as they reproduce and as generations reproduce, irrespective of how smart those mice are and how many scientific experiments they do, the reality is at the end of the day that natural environment is going to be totally degraded to such an extent there's not going to be enough food for our little mice friends and then they're going to start turning on each other and snapping at each other and getting angry with each other. As we saw, as I mentioned last week, Where one in six Australian adults are now in antidepressants. We're not happy. We're not happy. And then maybe a bit of cannibalism Survival of the fittest. And eventually the whole thing dies out. It's the same with planet Earth. Very simple. Climate emergency is a very simple complex. What is difficult, what is exceptionally difficult, is dealing with the state, the mental state that we all have, of believing that the only solution is a private investment for private profit solution now what the floods highlight is the fact that its collective action that helps to minimize the worst extent of the damage caused by the floods it's not just the australian defence forces helicoptering you know a minority of people off roofs it's about neighbours Getting out boats, wading across flooded streams, which is a dangerous anyway, knocking on neighbours' doors, getting people out, assisting people. It's that collective action which minimizes the worst excesses of a national of a natural disaster. And it's the same with the climate emergency. It's about a collective action which is based on not supporting an economic system which is based on the satisfaction of manufactured need at the expense of the health of the community. Let's move on. Let's move on. Talking about green states, I'd just like to make an appeal for the West Papuan's Now, at the last climate change conference, obviously the West Papuans were not part official, but they were part of the unofficial. They made a very important announcement. They made the announcement that they would create, if they ever achieved independence, a green state. What a green state means is that the natural resources that are available to them, their forests, would continue to be protected not just for the sake of the West Papuans and the Indonesian migrants who now live in West Papua, but for the sake of the planet as a whole. So it's a green revolution, not based on chemical fertilisers, but a green revolution based on protecting and extending what they have. Now, the West Papuans struggle, unlike the struggle in the Ukraine, is a forgotten struggle. Although most Australians now know about the Ukraine, very few know about West Papua. West Papua is less than 70 kilometres from the Australian mainland. Over the last 60 years, during a protracted war of independence against Indonesian occupation, over half a million from a population of around 1.2 million have died in that struggle. That's an extraordinary number. The Australian government continues to provide military aid to the Indonesian government. It continues to train on Australian soil the soldiers which now infest West Papua. There is one Indonesian soldier for every six West Papuan adults garrisoned in West Papua. But their independence struggle continues. The world turns its back on their independence struggle. The world community refuses to place the issue of West Papuan independence on the United Nations decolonisation list. And the West Papuan people continue to die at increasing rates, not just from military intervention but from total neglect. And over the last seven years... I've been the convener of the West Papuan Rent Collective Office. And the West Papuan Rent Collective, the West Papuan office in Collins Street in Docklands, is a de facto embassy. And it exists because of collective action. It consists because, my fellow Australians, you like that? It exists because of people like you and me willing to put our hand in our pocket and pay the rent for the West Papuan office in Docklands, which acts... As a centre which coordinates West Papuan independence activity. Now, if you'd like to join the Rent Collective, and we're about 20 members short, you can always ring me on 0439 395 489. If you want to try before you buy, I suggest you come to the West Papuan Lunch on Sunday, the 27th of March at Docklands 838. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. Once again, we extend our sympathies to all our listeners in Queensland and New South Wales who are currently facing an extraordinary um, situation. You can write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can go to anarchistmedia.org, anarchistmedia.org. Don't forget... The public house and everybody's business, parliamentary Visuals in Victoria on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House, 1 pm this, fir- sorry, midday this Thursday, 12 to 1, followed by lunch. That's right, lunch, isn't that wonderful? Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Listen in next week. <laughs> Minds at plot destruction Sorcerer of Death Construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist Wall This Week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10 a.m. every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist Wall this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national, and international events.